Hello folks, this is Patrick. Welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the show, I'm excited for you all to hear my conversation with Hebrew Bible scholar, Dr. John Levinson. John is Albert A. List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard Divinity School and an award-winning author and scholar specializing in, amongst other topics, literary interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, Midrash, Jewish theology, and Jewish-Christian relations. Today on the show, we'll be doing a 10-year retrospective interview on his 2012 publication, Inheriting Abraham, the Legacy of the Patriarch in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And if this interview leaves you wanting more, you can find a link to the book in the description below. It's a fascinating exploration of this figure and his lasting influence on world religions, so I would encourage you to give it a go. Um, Before we get on to the conversation, I'm pleased to say that Bibliology is also now on Twitter. That's at Bibliology01. So please feel free to follow us for updates and the inevitable Twitter war between myself and Richard Dawkins. You can find a link to the profile in the description below. Thank you for your continued support and listening to the podcast. Without further ado, let's get on to the conversation with John, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, John. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Patrick. It's an honor to be here. Okay, so we're going to be speaking about a book that was released 10 years ago by you by the name of Inheriting Abraham. And uh, this is, of course, about the legacy of Abraham in all the uh, the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. But um, before we get into discussing that a bit, I'd like to, um, you know, uh, let the audience get to know you just uh, a little bit, the, the man behind the professor, so to speak. If you weren't in academia, what would you do for a living? I don't really know. Uh, I might have gone into something like opera, singing an opera, except I'm tone deaf. I have no sense of pitch, and I have no rhythm. So uh, probably that would not have been a great success. And I, you know, I've thought of ballet, uh, but the problem there is I have a bad feet. I'm kind of clumsy. I've worn art support since I was 11 years old. It's hard to get a ballet slipper yeah. with an art support that will fit me. And the leotards, you know, an XXL, you know, it's not easy to find. So uh, uh, other than that, I don't know what I what I would have done. I probably, uh, you know, they say uh, them that can't do teach. So probably I was I was a born uh, a teacher. I don't know. I'm a good teacher, but. I don't know anything else I would do better. When I think of other fields that interest me, I usually imagine myself as an academic in those other fields. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, so uh, that doesn't really answer your question, what would I do if I were not in academia? Yeah, well, I do have good news for you on the opera front because uh, music technology has advanced um, quite a bit in the last few years that you can actually auto-tune your voice and everything now. So, you know, that... <laughs> well, if someone would dub it in for me, you know, I probably could become a famous singer, you know, I... Yeah, wonder, wonder is what technology can do. Yeah, a lot of singers have made a career out of that. So yeah, uh, and um, the other um, the other uh, notable thing about your appearance on this podcast um, is that um, you were the first. I think you were the first uh, Jewish professor we've interviewed. So um, just wondering, um, in terms of uh, your own Judaism, um, is this an important aspect of your religious life, or would you um, gravitate more to the, the humanistic uh, Judaism side of things, sort of embrace no, I would, Yeah, I would say the, uh, the religious is central to my identity, my general identity to my Jewish identity, the religious, the theological, and involvement in, in the 
sacred study and uh, practice of Judaism as best I can uh, is uh, is very central to me. I, I'm not really in the uh, humanistic or purely uh, non-religious, secular, ethnic interpretation of Jewishness. And uh, I, I don't I don't see a huge future for the pure for the for continuing a meaningful Jewish identity over the generations that doesn't uh, focus fairly centrally on the actual practice and study of Torah. So the answer to your question would be: uh, I uh, the religious part is this is central to me. Yeah, I'm I'm not um I'm not too familiar with um the the kind of contemporary Judaism, but as far as I understand, you have the you have three like main camps where it'd be orthodox, conservative, and reformed. Would I be correct? Correct. And kind correct. of the the orthodox would be the most um the most conservative, and then the the uh, reform would kind of be more like uh, analogous to sort of progressive Christianity, that that kind of thing. Maybe I mean that's not a bad analogy. I would say the orthodox are the most committed to the practice of halacha, to the specifics of Jewish law, actually pressing it and involvement in the study of Torah very intensively. Uh, of course, there are gradations and intramural disputes within all these groups. Uh, and then across the spectrum, uh, I would say that has to do with the degree to which they orient themselves around post-enlightenment developments. Conservatives would orient themselves a bit more on post-enlightenment developments than orthodox and reform more than conservative. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily say and conservative is, is in that sense a form of liberal Judaism. It's a form of non-orthodox Judaism. So I'd say the one that's maximally committed to the practice of traditional Talmudic law would be uh, orthodoxy. Okay. Yes. So that's that's quite similar to Christianity in that you have the um, well, at least in that, in that you have the the ones that are more affected by what's happened after the Enlightenment, and then you have the, the more uh, the more rigorous but, but, ones. Yeah. But in both cases, the Jewish and the Christian. You'd have to say that even the ones who say they're not affected by what's happened since the Enlightenment are in many ways affected by it. Even if they react angrily towards it, that's still a reaction to the Enlightenment. It's not just a pre-Enlightenment uh, tradition. And uh, the ones who think they orient themselves around the Enlightenment or modern developments often show continuities with pre-modern life more than, more than uh, may at first appear to be the case. Very true. It's very difficult to avoid the Enlightenment, unless you're living under a rock, per se. We'll get over to, you know, discussing the book and uh, some of the aspects of this book. And it's, um, of course, 10 years old, and that's the reason uh, um, you're on the podcast. We're looking to get speak to some uh, authors of books that, you know, were released 10 years ago and had some influence in the field. So um, 10 years ago, you know, were there any particular scholarly or cultural debates going on that would prompt you to write this kind of book, a book on um, Abraham and his legacy, or if not, what exactly was the source of inspiration here? You know, I've been interested in interreligious relations, the competing claims, the cooperation between different religious groups uh, since I was a child. It's been an interest of mine uh, all my life. Uh, and uh, after 9-11, you saw a tendency to move away from this problematic term, Judeo-Christian tradition, towards a, long, a larger term, Abrahamic religions, because uh, it's dawned on the West that Islam is really important and we need to know more about it. On the other hand, Islam is not Jewish or Christian. So by using the term Abrahamic, people, uh, were, uh, people thought they could uh, include Islam in this larger triad of, of religions. 
And I think that uh, that discourse probably was something I was thinking about. I've been interested in the figure of Abraham and his role in the Torah, his role as his reconception, Second Temple Judaism, and in Christianity, and to some extent in Islam uh, for many, many years. I've given seminars even before 9-11 on that topic. Uh, but I thought it was interesting to explore just exactly what the limitations are of the claim that such a thing as Abrahamic religion. What's the, what's the resource? What's valuable in that term? And what's uh, misleading in that term? And what's just downright wrong in a term like Abrahamic religions? So I think that probably was in the background of why I, I wrote Inheriting Abraham. Okay. And that's it's it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, Islam isn't really a, a religion I, I would associate a lot with Abraham, but, you know, that it definitely is like it does it does have some relation there so before we get into the nuts and bolts of the book i'd be curious to hear you know your opinion on a question you know sometimes gets floated around online or just in general is whether judaism um at its core is theologically more similar to christianity or islam or is that even a meaningful question or do, do you I think, think the, i think it's a meaningful question it's an interesting question but it's probably impossible to get much of an answer to because all these religious traditions are internally various. They have different moments in history. Neither Judaism nor Christianity is today what it was in 300 of the Common Era or 100 of the Common Era. All these three traditions change over time. They have different articulations. Islam is not the same in Indonesia, which has the largest Muslim population, as it is, let's say, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, all these uh, religious traditions are full of internal uh, disputes. It's hard to make a, a centralizing statement as to what is Judaism, what is Christianity, what is Islam. Uh, is Judaism closer in its theological core to Christianity or to Islam? Well, I would say the answer is yes. I would say the answer is it's closer to both of them. There are aspects of Judaism that are uh, closer to uh, Christianity. It sees what Christians call the Old Testament as sacred scripture. For Islam, only the Quran is sacred scripture, not the Old Testament or New Testament. Uh, it, Judaism has a belief in uh, chosenness. Usually Christians call it election. Uh, there's a particular body. In the case of the Jews, it's Am Yisrael. It's the Jewish people. In the case of uh, the people of Israel, in the case of Christianity, it's the church, which is different from the great mass of humanity. Um, whereas Islam, as I understand it, is more skeptical of claims of election of God singling out a particular group in quite the same same way. Uh, on the other hand, Judaism in some ways is closer to Islam. It's closer to Islam in that it, uh, it has a high estimation of law. A great deal of Muslim theology has to do with schools of legal thought. Uh, law is very important in Judaism. This notion of the works of the law and works righteousness, that sort of thing, you don't get much... Uh, Residents of that Christian discourse in Judaism, and I would think not in Islam either. The deed probably has a higher status, to speak broadly, uh, in Judaism than Islam. And then you get to the question of God. Well, uh, all three of these are, are call themselves and can in many ways rightly be called monotheistic traditions, traditions that believe in the oneness of God. In the Middle Ages, uh, especially Jews living in Muslim countries and Muslim thinkers themselves, were very skeptical of this claim that the that Christianity is really monotheistic considering the Trinity. Uh, do you have one God or do you have uh, three gods? 
Of course, that's not a very uh, sophisticated view of Orthodox Nicene Christology. Uh, and it, it uh, ignores the un in triune. It tries to say you just, that Christianity is tritheism. On the other hand, uh, that whole problem of how to figure out what way it's meaningful to talk about a trinity and talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, all as one uh, uh, in, integral God, uh, that's very unique to Christianity and doesn't, doesn't have uh, strong analogies in Judaism and Islam. So in that sense, Judaism would be closer to Islam. So the truth is, uh, it, it's, it's impossible for me to really give a definitive answer. It's a, it's a provocative and stimulating question. But the last analysis, there's just too many variables there. And I think that's that's wise to say that, yeah, that you can, it's difficult to get a full-blown answer to that. And one of the biggest questions that Christians and Jews ponder, um, and you mentioned this in, in your answer, of course, is the idea of election, or uh, that's a Christian term. And of course, that chosenness is the how the Jewish people would put it. And the, the reason for God's choosing of Abraham and Israel, that's, of course, the bit, one of the big parts of the Abraham story. And you argue in the book, this is just quoting, the Torah itself offers little by way of explanation for God's great act of choosing Israel, only God's inexplicable love. And I'm wondering to, to what extent is this, um, do, you, do you think this ambi ambiguity is deliberate? Is it sort of the, the narrator's way of adding mystique to God? Um, or is it just the narrator didn't know, didn't know, didn't have a reason to give? He just. Yeah. It's hard for me to know what the narrator's intention is. Hmm. Um, certainly, the chosenness of Israel, in the as narrated in the Bible, is shrouded in mystery. The source of it, the reason for it, is shrouded in mystery. When Deuteronomy tries to discuss this in Deuteronomy seven, it tries to dispel various. Uh, self-flattering uh, conceptions that uh, Israel may have of itself. You know, Lobe Rubechem, not because you're more numerous than the other, other uh, countries, uh, other nations in the world that God chooses. You're actually the least among peoples. But because he fell in love with your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and swore an oath to them and fulfilled that oath, that's really the reason for the Exodus, the promise of land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It isn't some principal opposition to slavery or anything like that that we uh, people would often like to, to have been. So the question I would ask is, well, isn't there something mysterious about falling in love? Think of the word falling. It's involuntary. It's, un it's unexpected. Mm -hmm. um, I have another book called The Love of God, where I deal with this in more, more detail. The connection between uh, God's love in the Hebrew Bible and classical Judaic and classical Midrash and uh, Israel's obligation to turn to love God. Uh, so uh, is that an explanation? Can you, can you say there's that, that that validates it? God could have fallen in love with somebody else, but didn't. It's a very personal, familial God that we have in, in, in these ancient Jewish sources. And to try to dispel that and come to some sort of grand principle of merit, which leads to why God chose uh, Israel, uh, I don't think it leads anywhere. Now, when you get to Second Temple Judaism and Rabbinic Judaism, and this carries over into the Quran, by the way, there's a strong continuity between Jews and Islam here, you get the notion that Abraham saw through the idolatry, the materialism, the determinism of his Mesopotamian culture. And in some versions, he saw through the astrology that people thought controlled human events. And he became an iconoclast, a person who destroys idols. 
and was nearly martyred because of that. And that's when and where God reveals himself to him and tells him, get out of your father's house in Genesis 12, meaning literally the house. I'm going to destroy that house. And the apocalypse of Abraham, it's literally a house. He's going to destroy that house for its idolatry. So this sees the initiative as lying in an insight in Abraham himself about the nature of reality that a free, sovereign, providential God guides human affairs and not the stars and not material entities. That carries over, by the way, into Islam. That's actually, that, that, that Midrashic story is then uh, uh, found in the Quran. Uh, but uh, if you ask me in the Hebrew Bible, there's nothing like that there. I don't see Abraham remonstrating about idolatry or preaching against idolatry, any such thing in the, in the Hebrew Bible. He doesn't sacrifice on the Canaanite altars, but neither does he protest. And you would never get any feeling from the Abraham narratives that the people among whom he lives are miserable, sunken, immoral idolaters, you know, uh, worshiping rocks and, and stones. Uh, that's the image that you get from later Jewish polemics and from Islamic polemics and, and stories. But uh, in, in, in the Abraham story, God sent Isaac, bolt out of the blue, God, God simply chooses them. But then Abraham has to prove worthy of that choice to some degree there. I, I like to put it this way. Um, the, um, I don't know whether your own background is Protestant or Catholic. I think there probably has been at some point in history a little, a little uh, tension between Protestants and Catholic in Ireland. Am I, am I correct? That's, that's actually happened uh, every that's, once in a while. That's very true. So it's um, Northern Ireland is the, is, would be predominantly Protestant and Southern Ireland would be predominantly Catholic. I'm actually, I'm actually this weird, I'm in this weird situation where I am a Protestant in the South of Ireland. No, so, um, I think it's about 5%. I think about, yeah. about, about 15% of Catholics in Northern Ireland and 5% of Protestants in the Republic of Ireland, right? Yeah. Something like that. Well, anyway, uh, why do I bring that up? No, no good reason at all. Uh, but uh, I like to say about the Abraham story, it begins in a Lutheran mode and ends in a Catholic mode. It begins in a Lutheran mode in that God picks him as purely as an act of grace, unmotivated grace in the Hebrew Bible, not in, in uh, Jewish tradition in the Second Temple and rabbinic times. It's a pure act. It's a bolt out of the blue. Get up and go. I'm going to make you uh, a byword of blessing. I'm going to, to give you a land, et cetera, et cetera. By the end of the story, though, he, the same promise of Genesis 12 is echoed, and other promises that he receives along the way, reiterated, they're reiterated in 13 to 15, so on, are echoed at the end of 22, after he proves willing to pass the most excruciating test, namely, willingness to obey the divine command to sacrifice his son, the son on whom the whole promise rests. At that point, God then says, that's why I'm going to do all this for you, and what he's going to do for him is what he's promised all along. So in that sense, it's grace and works conjointly at the end. 12, chapter 12, begins with grace. 22, the same promise is reiterated as conjointly grace and works. So uh, that's what I mean, uh, I say somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that it moves from a, a Protestant, uh, from a Lutheran to a Catholic moment. But that's not suggest that uh, it's not suggesting people should move from uh, Ulster to the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> No, no, I, lo I love that illustration. It's it's really interesting. And um, um, actually, a, a great place, you know, to find sort of that discussion of, uh, you know, Second Temple Judaism and how um, they, they kind of, uh, the, 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 the Jewish people, they, they began to see Abraham as a, 
as a great monotheist, you know, and that was the reason God picked him. Um, a great you can find a great discussion of that. Uh, that this is speaking to the audience in James Kugel's book, um, How to yeah. Read the Bible, has a, has an excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he assembles all kinds of texts from all over the place. I don't think that idea is found in Christian sources, if I remember correctly. Jewish and Muslim, the idea of Abraham as the iconoclast destroying the icons. Yeah. It sort of remakes Abraham in the image of, I don't know, of Elijah or some, some of the classic uh, prophets discrediting the gods of the other peoples. I, 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 don't, I don't think I, I was able to find the Christian reflexes of that. Mm. But, uh, yeah. I suppose it makes sense, you know, that they would, they would come to that conclusion, the, the Jewish people, because when you, when you read the story of Abraham, you know, he's, well, we could we could we'll talk about the Akedah, you know, the the binding of Isaac later. But he doesn't really come across as the most, you know, morally virtuous person, you know. So it, it makes sense that they that these stories would exist, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are uh, texts that interpret him as extremely morally virtuous and talk about the Zuchutavot, the merit of the patriarchs. Although the main source of merit of the patriarchs, the most important one, I would say, is the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, his obedience in that excruciating test. Uh, but uh, I don't think the, the the Bible itself does not really present him as explicitly as some sort of paragon to be uh, imitated. Now, I think it's fair to say that uh, in order for a scripture to be useful, you like to think the people God favors deserve to be favored so that we can imitate them. Mm. So Abraham becomes the archetype of faith. He becomes the archetype of obedience. He becomes the archetype of the love of God. Uh, he becomes the archetype of, of generosity and hospitality, which I think there's some basis for in Genesis 18, where he entertains the three men visiting him just before the annunciation of the birth of, uh, of uh, Isaac, where, or the destruction of Sodom. Uh, but, uh, you know, he becomes the archetype of all kinds of very positive values. And I, I don't belittle that. I'm not one of these biblical scholars who belittles tradition as it becomes useful to the people uh, in, in, in the pews and the people in their homes. Uh, but on the base of the Bible itself, I don't think he's presented as chosen because he somehow has merited it. Mm. Yeah. And another, um, another question, you know, that uh, comes up around this topic of chosenness is that, um, and you're aware of this in the book, and um, the idea that many would argue that the reason God picked Abraham was precisely because of his plan to save the world through this one family. And um, uh, to what extent is this, is this approach uh, textually unwarranted, do you think? Well, if you put it within the context of the Christian Bible, including the New Testament and early Christological claims, it's very warranted. That's very much a kind of Christian interpretation. Uh, the seed, the promised seed of Abraham, especially Paul talks about, then being interpreted as Jesus and uh, the Mongoim, uh, Abraham as the father of a multitude of nations is understood as bringing all the nations, all the ethne, all the Gentiles into, into uh, one body, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but within the Jewish context, within the, the Torah itself, within the book of Genesis, which we're read about Abraham, uh, I don't see a basis for that. I don't, I don't think the question of salvation, of saving even comes up there. I don't think, I don't think the, Pentateuch is uh, a uh, product of a salvation-oriented religion. So I would say it doesn't celebrate God the Redeemer and Deliverer. It certainly does, especially in the Exodus. 
but it's not primarily focused on the question of who was saved and who was not saved and so forth. Again, that's the kind of apocalyptic context in which Paul wrote in which early Christianity took shape. I think it was the uh, scholar Ernst Kazemann who said that uh, uh, apocalyptic is the mother of uh, Christian theology. And it's, it's certainly the mother of early Christian theology, uh, of early Christological claims. But I don't, I don't think uh, there's uh, the question of salvation, uh, I don't think is the, uh, is the uh, issue there in, uh, in the story of Abraham in the Torah itself. Mm. And um, you note that, um, you know, one one passage that there's a lot of controversy around is Genesis, Genesis 12b. And right. um, there's a question of um, how this should be translated. I suppose maybe if you could, uh, maybe do you know this verse by heart? Maybe you could. Uh, no, so I know the heart by verse by heart. Yeah. It's uh, uh, that, uh, and all the families of the earth will be blessed or uh, uh, will bless themselves. Now, here's a big problem. In you or through you uh, or by you, I think the King James Bible says that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In thee. Assumption being that all the families of the world are becoming uh, uh, somehow heeding the Abrahamic message which fits nicely with the Christological interpretation, the appropriation of this literature into Christianity. Uh, again, I am not against the appropriation of this older literature into later traditions, Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. That's what keeps it alive. I'm not some sort of Karaite or radical Protestant sola scriptura, and, and as soon as you change what the text originally meant, whatever that means, uh, problematic in and of itself, uh, you suddenly have, uh, have invalidated it. Uh, but I think on the face of it, it's a very ambiguous phrase. Does it mean they'll be blessed or they will bless themselves? Other, other texts, uh, other uh, versions of this same uh, verse, Genesis 12, 3, um, speak of it as in reflexive terms, they bless themselves. Uh, and is it in thee or through thee or by reference to you? There's a good analogy, we could go into it, a good analogy where Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, his two grandsons through Joseph, and he says, Bacha Yivarech Israel. He says, using that exact same word, Bacha, in you, through you, by reference to you, shall, shall Israel make blessings. And may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the idea. So I think the best guess as to what this means is, uh, you will be a byword of blessing. People will make blessings, even blessing themselves, by reference to you. May I be like Abraham. It even says, hey, Abraha, be a blessing. You're going to be a blessing. And then, in fact, uh, people, will, all the families of the world will bless themselves by reference to you. It's a very close analogy to that text in Genesis 48, uh, Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. But we'll never really know, will we? That's mm. really... Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's ambiguous enough to generate uh, many uh, different interpretations. Mm. It's also the case that various people who treat the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob well uh, do find themselves blessed, uh, as opposed to those who treat them 
but poorly in, in, in the Book of Genesis. Right? People who treat them well uh, end up uh, better than, 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 than I don't always be the case. I think of Laban, for example, and Jacob. And uh, Laban becomes marvelously rich because of Jacob's uh, uh, handling of his flocks. Uh, I think of, uh, of uh, Potiphar and all of Egypt, and really the way the text describes it, all of the world, and surviving the famine because of Joseph. There is some sense in which they do mediate a blessing uh, to uh, the world. In uh, later Jewish literature, I think of a figure like uh, Barbanel, who lived in the uh, 15th century, uh, began his life in Spain until the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. Uh, Don Isaac of Barbanel, who wrote that, uh, it's not an original idea to him, that monotheism, the belief in the one true invisible providential God, spread everywhere in the world from Abraham. I think Abraham is the first person to have seen it or the first person to restore belief in, in uh, this God, to rediscover the true nature of God. Well, then you look all over the world and you see in his world, you look all over the world, you see Christianity, you look over the world, you see Islam, and you say, well, these people have indeed been blessed through, uh, through Abraham because of their belief in, in this uh, one God and this, their reverence for this figure of Abraham. So I wouldn't want to rule out the idea that, that he's a, thought of as a source of blessing. But I think linguistically, philologically, the one that seems most likely to me is that it means They'll, they'll be blessed or they'll bless themselves by reference to you. Mm. Doesn't, um, doesn't Laban, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, doesn't he kind of uh, go from being blessed to kind of uh, cursed later on? In well, the- I don't know that he's cursed, but he, uh, he gets nasty with Jacob and ultimately fails and the two of them make a treaty and they set up a pillar and let's buy you, you go this, this part's yours, this part's mine and they make, they make a, a kind of covenant, a kind of treaty with each other, and the aggression ends at that point. No, he's kind of a, a nasty, stingy sort of guy, Laban, uh, humorously so. Uh, on the other hand, you'd have to say he is a reason why he wants Jacob to stay there, because Jacob is really working very hard for him, and, and he's prospering as a result. Yeah. yeah. If you look at other figures, you could look at a figure like Hazuerus in the book of Esther, uh, uh, who... Uh, you know, ends up appointing the Jew Mordecai as his prime minister and, and does what probably every government would like to do, reaps in a lot more tax money at the end of Esther 10 <laughs> as a result of his prime minister. So he's, he's prospering. I'd like to just uh, ask maybe one more question about uh, election. That's kind of been sort of the general theme of what we've been talking about so far. Um, we've, of course, talked a little bit about, you know, Paul's theology of chosenness and election Sometimes it's an idea with uh, with Christians that uh, his theology of election would have been more inclusive than that of the Judaism of his day. Do you think that's true, or or is it not? What 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 do you think of that? I think categories like inclusivism and exclusivism, they're very very popular today, are not helpful when you try to apply them to antiquity. Universalism, particularism, we all use it. I certainly use it. I don't know how helpful it is. Uh, Paul, as far as I can see sees no hope for people who are not in Christ or those who are not of Christ, as he says. Uh, and he thinks that those in Christ uh, have been grafted into the family of Abraham, which is to say salvation or deliverance in the coming catastrophe, because I think Paul thought he was on the verge of the end time, will come only to those who have been grafted into the family of Abraham. That's not universal humanity. When he wrote that, 
that was a, uh, uh, Christians were a very, very small subsect uh, of, of the Jews. Uh, you know, in Second Temple times, I always say that Judaism in Second Temple times was different from Judaism today. In the Second Temple times, Jews had a lot more sex than they have today. And so the, uh, uh, this is a very small, this, 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 this Christian group, and Paul is writing this, in, I don't know, the year 50, year 60. This is uh, a very small group. He aspires to have the whole world uh, join that group. There's another way of putting it, he aspires to eliminate religious uh, uh, diversity uh, in the world and have one group, which will be Christianity, that we want easy to take course in comparative religion. All you don't have to do with one of them. Uh, and, uh, but he didn't succeed at that. And uh, it's hard for me to say that that's therefore more inclusive. I think people, people sometimes take uh, Paul's particular exegesis of the Abraham story as exegesis of other, other texts in the Hebrew Bible and filter them through that enlightenment, universalistic kind of vaguely kind of Kantian filter uh, that we mentioned earlier and think that he's talking about worldwide human equality and the nobility of human beings and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the truth of the matter is don't leave off that last blah. Uh, but the truth is that uh, if you wanna talk in, in, in the ancient Judaic world about humanity in general and the dignity of humanity in general, I would say you wanna look at the universal figures, which are Adam and Noah. Uh, Adam uh, created in a primordial, primordial humanity, created in the image and likeness of God in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, uh, you, don't, you don't talk about universal humanity by talking about a person who's very much singled out. And in the traditions Paul is inheriting, second temple Judaism, singled out and at odds to, to a large degree with his culture. That's much more countercultural than that kind of universal, inclusive as we're all the same thing model it can uh, accommodate. So I uh, know I don't think Paul is more inclusive. I think he has a strong missionary focus and therefore wants everybody, you know, aspires to convert, convert to the known world. He's going to go off to Spain and all that sort of thing uh, to his, his new, uh, new theological affirmation. But uh, when you see how he used the Abraham story, it's interesting, he doesn't say, you know, Jesus restored you to your original Adamic excellence, some of that in Romans 5 and so on. End of story. But also you've been grafted into the family of Abraham, a very, very small subsection of universal humanity. Even that famous Galatians 3, 26 through 28, there's neither, however the order is, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Well, the beginning of that section, if I remember correctly, is as many as have been baptized into Jesus Christ. That is to say, he's talking about uh, baptism. And I think, I, I think what he's saying there is, baptism is the rite de passage, the entry ritual by which people join this new body, the body of Christ, which is the church. Uh, and therefore it's analogous, let's say, to circumcision in Judaism, vaguely analogous. Circumcision in Judaism applies to males and not females. It applies to slaves of Jews. Uh, it, uh, it applies to Jews and not Gentiles, except for Gentile slaves of Jews. I think what he's trying to say is the rules of entry of the equivalent Jewish rite of passage don't govern baptism. I don't think he's making a statement of 
radical ontological equality of all peoples in the world. It's a particular subcategory, a new category, a third race, so to speak, that's appearing in the world now. And it's, it's the body of Christ. It's this church. But in modern times, I think a lot of Christians, especially liberal Christians, progressive Christians, Western Christians, certainly a lot of American highly individualistic Christians have a very weak doctrine of the church, very weak ecclesiology. And therefore, they think that's just everybody. That's just humanity. Yeah. I, I beg to differ. Yeah, no. And I'll just say uh, um, it's really funny that you mentioned uh, that baptism is vaguely similar to circumcision because, of course, in, in Protestantism, that's a that's an absolute can of worms that uh, there's people who believe in like baptism just for believers and they would try to minimize like the whole uh, circumcision comparison and everything. Yeah, but, minima- uh, yeah that's right. Min- yeah. Is there going to be infant baptism or adult baptism? Or- yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, or, or split the difference, I guess, in Catholicism and similar traditions with confirmation. We confirm yeah. as a willing adult what was done to you as a, an ignorant baby. Yeah, all kinds yeah. of ways of handling that. Mm. No, it's a, it, it is a that was that was a helpful uh, explanation though, and uh, oh, we'll uh, we'll um, we'll move on to um, the other incident in Abraham's life, which I think um, well the main incident in Abraham's life that uh, really. Um, uh, everyone knows about pretty much whether they're religious or not and that's the idea of the the akidah and um, that's the jewish phrase for it of course the the christian phrase is the binding of isaac i think and the christian phrase is usually the sacrifice of isaac is and it jewish phrase, i think my, my my experience with most christians talk about the sacrifice of isaac you look at at great works of art caravaggio or whatever they usually name it the sacrifice of isaac uh, i think very much influenced by the typological reading that says Jesus really is put to death, and that death was in, is interpreted as expiatory, propitiatory, sacrificial. Uh, I think people then project that back on, on to, to Isaac, who is not actually sacrificed. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, the translation of Akedah is binding. So it's the binding of Isaac. But my, at least in my experience, maybe it's different where you are. In my experience, most Christians tend to think of it as the sacrifice of Isaac. I was surprised by a term like binding. That's that's interesting. Uh, that I I'm, I'm used to binding. Maybe it's I don't know American versus Irish versus you know whoever I don't know. But uh, but um, you know the, the this story you know it's created all sorts of anxieties for religious interpreters down through the ages. But I'd be first of all before you know we get into how you know different traditions have interpreted this. You know, do you think is the narrative you know is it purposely designed to make the reader uncomfortable? Are we meant to be kind of confused by this or well the story is told in extremely cryptic style so we don't know what Abraham is thinking we don't know what he's feeling people fill in the gaps which is a necessary part of the process of literary interpretation Uh, so people like Kierkegaard have him as a man of great faith motivated by faith faith is never mentioned in Genesis 22 we don't know what he was thinking or what he was a uh, feeling. Uh, I, I like to respect the gaps. I like to respect the stylistic sparsity of the narrative. And uh, that does uh, add to the uncanny or eerie feeling to the whole episode. It also makes it a, 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 a passage that calls out uh, for interpreters. It calls out for interpretation because it's so non-didactic. It's, it doesn't really give you the moral uh, at the end. Uh, uh, my own view is when people have 
problems with it in modernity. Well, who, who would have a problem understanding that? That's, that's really understandable. But I think it's because they put it in the framework of ethics and what Abraham to be the model. He's every man. He's the model of what we're supposed to do. And how do you say any ethical person, any sort of religious paragon goes out and uh, is prepared to murder his son? To which I would say, uh, why do you put it in the, in the framework of ethics at all? Why do you think it's not an ethical counsel? And why do you call it murder, since the text itself is using sacrificial terminology? Yes, if, it, if Abraham had gone through with it, if God had not called it off, Isaac would have been dead. And if you put him up in a court of law today, Abraham would be convicted of murder. But in the ancient context, it's a question of, of, uh, of sacrifice with an altar. And sacrifice is, is hard for us moderns to understand. I think especially in the Protestant world, it's hard for people to, to relate to, to a sacrifice. Um, but it has its own kind of dynamic and its own kind of spiritual dynamic. I think the key thing in, in the key dichotomy in the Akedah is that between giving and withholding. Is he going to give his son? Is he going to sacrifice his son, which means giving over, present his son? Uh, or is he going to uh, withhold him, hold him back, and therefore fail the test? And uh, if you see it as an ethical test, well, of course he failed the test. If you see it as a, a test within the sacrificial, religious, theological framework, he passed it gloriously, which is God. why God rewards him uh, with those rich blessings that we mentioned earlier in Genesis uh, 22, 15 through 18, uh, reiterating the original promises to Abraham, including the multiple, many descendants, and so on and so on, uh, because of his willingness this time, because of his willingness to do that deed, that's that, that's that works dimension, because of his willingness to do that deed. He, uh, uh, so uh, I think anyone who wants to simply condemn Abraham in Genesis 22 has got to ask this question. What do you make of these religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that treasure Abraham's memory and study reverently that text, and at the same time have since scriptural times totally forbidden child sacrifice and human sacrifice in general, and seen child sacrifice as emblematic of the grossest, most horrific form of idolatry? I mean, that's, that's the first question. Obviously, people didn't see him as engaging in that idolatry in that horrendous abuse. They saw him as giving up uh, what was dearest to him. One of the medieval Jewish commentators, I think it might be a doc, Rabbi David Kimchi, living in Provence, uh, probably heard what, early 13th century, something like that, uh, says that if Abraham, Abraham would rather have asked to commit suicide than to have to uh, sacrifice Isaac. And that their lives are tied up with each other. Uh, his futurity, his whole chance of future, his whole life has been staked on this promise. The promise now we now know falls only on Isaac. It doesn't fall on Ishmael or the other six sons we turn, turns out that Abraham has. And yet that's what he's supposed to give up. So uh, I, the way I like to see it is, uh, I pick up on the Book of Jubilees, which is a, a Jewish non-canonical book from the mid-second century, before the Common Era, uh, about 150 BCE, something like that. Book of Jubilees prefaces to the story of the Akedah, the story of, uh, of Job, the prologue to Job. I've heard of this, yeah. Yeah, yeah where God yeah. is so happy with his servant Abraham. And then Mastema, this devil figures a lot, this demonic or prosecutor sort of guy, sort of like the prosec heavenly prosecuting attorney, which is 
what Satan is in Job. He says, well, is it any wonder? I mean, you know, it's always worked out for him. Uh, he, uh, you'll see he loves Isaac more than anything else. Implication, he loves Isaac more than he loves you. Order to sacrifice Isaac and see if he'll do it. Right? So it's very much a test like the test of Job. So it's very easy to obey God when God says, you know what, uh, I'm going to give you your own country. I'm going to give you tremendous wealth. I'm going to make you famous. Hey, fine, I'll do it. But then what happens when there's an element of sacrifice that comes in? Some element of self-renunciation. Some element of radical, painful obedience. As long as you're doing a mitzvah, doing a commandment because it's enjoyable and fun and enriching, hey, no problem. What about when it's painful and involves real sacrifice? And that's where I think the, uh, the uh, Akedah comes in, that uh, Abraham is, is, uh, is asked to act sacrificially. If you ignore that and just put in the ethical category of murder, well, then you miss all that, and he's just some kind of nutcase. And there are a lot of people today who interpret him as a nutcase, and he failed the test, he should have argued with, with God, and et cetera, et cetera. But on the plain sense of Genesis 22, well, God doesn't regard him as a nutcase who failed the test. He rewards him because you did this thing. I'm going to give you all those promises that I already made. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting that um, there, there was actually a, um, a a book that was recently um, recently came out from from a like a, it was actually a Christian scholar as well by the name of uh, J. Richard Middleton, and he oh, he, yeah. actually, he actually argues that um, in the in the passage um, uh, that God is actually critical of Abraham. Um, I know. Uh, yeah. Have you actually come across his his argument, or? I, I, yeah, I, I know that argument. It's it's around a lot of different places. It's very, it's. I don't want to claim it isn't scholarly, but it's very fashionable. It's very popular today to take uh, this position that Abraham failed the test and so on and so on. I think, as I say, underlying that, I think is a failure to recognize with this uh, reckon with the sacrificial nature of what's going on there. Uh, I think that it's very dangerous to abstract. Abraham from the text in Genesis and make him every man is a very specific person, Abraham, a very specific person, Isaac, a very specific promise that comes to Abraham that rests on Isaac. And to make it into kind of a, a general uh, uh, statement uh, uh, about ethics, or in this case, lack of ethics, I, I think is fundamentally wrong. But there are a number of books like that out there today, even by very reputable scholars, which J. Richard Middleton is. So, uh, I just I just fundamentally disagree with those with that, that reading. I should say, by the way, that's another uh, connection with Jews and Christianity because a version of the Akedah does come into the Quran, the thirty seventh surah of the Quran, much shorter. But you see Abraham uh, wishing to, uh, uh, you know, uh, receiving an oracle that he should uh, sacrifice his son. The son there is unnamed. In the early centuries of Islam, there was a lively debate: was the son Isaac or was the son Ishmael? Most Muslims today tend to assume it's Ishmael, but uh, the classical tradition saw uh, this as ambiguous. In fact, the son is unnamed in the Quran is is, is significant. Mm-hmm. Like listeners of the show, you know, they'll be aware of how Christians have frequently interpreted this story. And uh, of course, you've alluded to as well, the whole uh, typological idea of this is, you know, foreshadowing uh, Jesus and such. But um, is, is there a common way that Jews have interpreted the significance of this episode, or is it kind of is there a lot of uh, diversity there? I think there's a lot of diversity, but there are some common themes. One theme is this notion I mentioned earlier called the Zuchut uh, the merit of the ancestors. 
the idea being that God made a promise, <coughs> excuse me, promise to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that, uh, and uh, uh, they, uh, they obeyed his will and they accumulated merit, which then the Jews, when they're in uh, situations of affliction and discrimination and persecution, the recipients of violence, as they usually have been over history, including our own times, uh, can draw on. Uh, that is to say, God graciously imputes the merit of the patriarchs, the Zuchuta vote, to their descendants. So in penitential liturgies, in the Jewish liturgy, uh, references to the Akedah are plentiful. Uh, it's somewhat like the Christian theology about the merit, I would say, that Jesus' obedience uh, let's say again in Romans 5, Jesus' obedience secures kind of merit that then God graciously imputes to all kinds of people. Uh, yeah, I think that would be like a, a an idea in uh, some traditions of, you know, more reformed traditions of, you know, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the yeah. believer sort of thing. So interesting. I didn't know. <laughs> didn't I mean, know. if you think about it, I mean, again, Romans 5, 12 to 21, the... Uh, to Adam's typology in Paul. Yeah. First Adam, sinful, disobedient, uh, represents condemnation and death. The second Adam being Jesus, who's the, the uh, antitype, who represents uh, righteousness, obedience, dikaiosune, uh, justification or exoneration, and eternal life. Uh, so he reverses, just as this kind of might say inherited sinfulness from Adam, if you want to call it inherited. There's a kind of inherited justification or righteousness from Jesus, because whatever Jesus did that Paul thinks uh, secured this, uh, the average Christian hasn't done that, but nonetheless benefits from it. That's analogous in my mind to the idea of the merit of the, of the ancestors. Of course, in the case of, of the Akedah, it's read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish uh, liturgical year, the second day of the fall New Year's festival, the great uh, fall New Year's festival. And uh, uh, it pervades the liturgy of, of uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, references to it, poetic reworkings of it, allusions to the Akedah. Uh, because if you think about it, the Jews, they're on trial, they're, they're guilty, they're on trial. They're facing the possibility of a death sentence before the heavenly court. And, and so they plead what they can, you know, in Banumasim, we don't have any good deeds to, to, to plead on our behalf. But please remember the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember what, what Abraham did on Mount Moriah and count that to our, to our benefit. So that would be a, a characteristic a Jewish appropriation of this, uh, of this story. Fascinating. Okay. And um, yes, and there's another interpretation, isn't there, that this is sort of the... Um, the the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac was the the place where the temple was. Am I correct? Yes, that that, that's as early as Chronicles. Namely, all it says in Genesis twenty two is the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him on one of the mountains. I will show you. But by the time you get to Second Chronicles, you see Solomon building the Beit Hamikdash, the temple, on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Uh, which would be the Temple Mount today, where the Dome of the Rock today stands in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, so as early as that, as early as Chronicles, as early as, I don't know, 5th, 4th century BCE, something like that, 
you already have some, I think, indication of an interpretation of the uh, Akedah as a foundation legend for the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And of course, then the Samaritans have it for, make a similar use for the, their temple in Rizim near Shechem, near Nablus, near the Palestinian city of Nablus today. So uh, that is, that's a very significant, uh, thank you for that, because that's a very uh, significant aspect of the Jewish interpretation of the story. And in fact, the foundation of all sacrifices, the Jews make all sacrifices made in the temple, uh, lies in Abraham's great deed of obedience in, in Genesis 22. Hmm. And just as a slight aside, they're still around today, aren't they, the Samaritans? Yeah, they are, about 15 or 20. Don't put down the Samaritans, there's some good Samaritans. <laughs> That's one of the successor communities to ancient Israel. You might say there's a Jewish successor community, a Christian successor community, more distantly a Muslim successor community, but there's also a Samaritan uh, community that's still around in very small numbers. Yeah, and off the top of my head, there's also, um, there's one group that say they come from John the Baptist. Um, I, Man, yeah. Man, Mandeans, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and then um, there's another one uh, um, that they, I think they claim to come from, uh, you know, the Jethro from uh, from uh, from yeah. the book of, book of Exodus. I can't remember. I think it begins with... Oh, I, don't know, I don't know that one. No, I th their name begins with D anyway, off the top of my head. Um, I'll be I'll be kicking myself listening back to this because I'll know it by then. But <laughs> let me know what it is I've been hearing about. Yeah, sure, sure will. Um, but um, we're getting towards the end of our time anyway. So, but before before we end this episode, I'd like to talk uh, briefly, you know, about the the thorny topic of uh, ecumenism between the Abrahamic religions, and it's something you mention in the book um, quite firmly is that you state that. The assumption that we can recover a neutral Abraham that is independent of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, yet authoritative over them, is is quite warranted. I suppose. Could you maybe quite, could you quite unwarranted? I think quite un quite unwarranted, right? Yeah, 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 right. quite unwarranted. Yeah. Um. So, could you unpack that a little bit? What what what? Why do you think that's that is unwarranted? That assumption. Well, if you say there's this overarching category that these three traditions belong to called Abrahamic. Well, how important is Abraham in those three traditions? So uh, there are classical Jewish sources that speak of the superiority of the Mosaic dispensation, Sinai, let's say, to the Abrahamic dispensation. Should Jews tone down their, their observance of Torah and mitzvot that are associated with the name of, of, of Moses? in order to build up their Abrahamic dimension with their very few mitzvot, very few commandments, their circumcision, very little you could trace back to Abraham, even on a literal reading of the text. Should Christians say, you know, uh, we'll, we'll sort of play down Jesus and play up Abraham. Why? The, uh, you know, in the Gospel of John, you know, it says, uh, uh, before Abraham was, I, I am. Right? Isn't that what it says in the Gospel yeah. of John? So, uh, uh, you know, the idea that, that somehow Christians should think that the one they call Jesus Christ is less important than Abraham, and Abraham is a control regulative on their interpretation of Jesus. Why? With Islam, there's a strong tendency in Islam, as early as the Quran itself, to see uh, uh, the message of Muhammad, see Islam, the religion Islam itself, as a restoration of the religion of Abraham. There's a strong belief that really the Jews and Christians have sort of gotten it wrong, somewhat right, but somewhat wrong. And 
the real restoration of the pure Abrahamic religion of the prophet Abraham comes from the seal and consummation of the prophets, which is Muhammad. So when you use a term like Abrahamic religion, I think the term itself is slightly tilted away from Judaism and Christianity and towards Islam. I think that was part of the intention was to find a, a cover category that included Islam, Muslims in the way Judeo-Christians are not. That's a, a worthy goal of a favorite Jewish, Christian, Muslim dialogue, et cetera. This is all very good. But the notion they should change their own internal theology by making Abraham the, uh, the whatever you want to call it, the North Star, the, the you know, the, that uh, governs everything else. I don't see the basis for it. I really, I really don't see the, the basis uh, uh, for doing that. And I think when you do that, uh, you know, you end up with this, I think, very sappy form of interfaith dialogue in which, okay, I say either, you say either. In America, we say controversy. And in Ireland, they say controversy, right? It's all the same thing. Well, if it's all the same thing, think what that does to the minority religion. Why should the minority resist assimilation into the majority uh, if there are no spiritual or moral benefits to its own distinctive identity? Uh, so I, uh, I really think that, that uh, the, uh, there are very good reasons to have interfaith dialogue to help uh, um, uh, uh, counteract prejudices, misinterpretations, stereotypes, which all religions have, and all cultures have, all other cultures, and, and religious people, relig secular people have their religions too, by the way. That's all very good. Uh, but uh, not all judgments they make on each other are based on prejudices, uh, and some of them based on deep, well-thought-out convictions. And uh, the notion that we're going to come up with this grand master religion, I think that accepts the dialogue of any real meaning. As there are people uh, who talk about those whose faith is limited to the hyphen in the word interfaith. And uh, that's, a, that's a very serious problem. The, the problem in interfaith dialogue is it's, it's the great temptation is basically to say, well, let's just say that we're all saying the same thing. And, and then, then the same thing we're saying, usually some political message. Uh, some uh, some immediate uh, social political agenda, and there's the right wing form of that, and there's the left wing form of that. But I think it saps these religions of their theological authenticity. Mm. I think your point about you know it's a it's a way of kind of including Islam in the, in the three. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I I suppose yeah. the the th framing it as the three most common monotheistic faiths doesn't exactly have the same ring to it, does it? You have to have no, it doesn't. <laughs> and you know, is Zoroastrianism monotheistic? There's a pagan monotheism, um, Roman Stoicism, you know, people like that, anyone talk about God in the singular, but that's not, uh, that's not the same phenomenon. I'll just I'd like to extend thanks to you for coming on the show, talking about this book. And of course, the, the listeners can, um, can find that linked in the description. Um, if you want to go and have a look, it's a it's a it's a good book to have a read of. So, thanks anyway, John, for, well, thank, for coming on the you, show. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for your careful reading and your uh, very astute questions. <laughs> <laughs>